Hello, and welcome to Kindred Spirits Book Club, where two grown-ass ladies geek out about Anne of Green Gables. I'm Reagan Duffy, and I'm joined by my lovely co-host, Kelly Gurner. Hey, Reagan. Kelly, let's talk about our kindred spirit of the episode. Today's kindred spirit is Miss Stacy, Anne's beloved teacher at Avonlea School. Miss Stacy arrives about halfway through the book, following the departure of Anne's first teacher, the priggish and incompetent Mr. Phillips. In this episode, we will be talking about both teachers, as well as Anne's experience of education in general, but know that only Miss Stacy is a true kindred spirit. Our quote of the episode comes after Anne's first encounter with Miss Stacy. Anne returned to the new school year late because she was recovering from her broken ankle. So while she had been hearing rumors about Miss Stacy, this was her first impression. In the new teacher, she found another true and helpful friend. Miss Stacy was a bright, sympathetic young woman with a happy gift of winning and holding the affection of her pupils and bringing out the best that was in them mentally and morally. Anne expanded like a flower under this wholesome influence and carried home to the admiring Matthew and the critical Marilla, glowing accounts of schoolwork and aims. I love Miss Stacy with my whole heart, Marilla. She is so ladylike and she has such a sweet voice. When she pronounces my name, I feel instinctively that she is spelling it with an E. I so, love this. Yes, me too. So important to Anne. So important to Anne. Okay, so I have to ask though, has Alice ever come home from school saying that she loves her teachers with her whole heart? Maybe not that exact phrasing, but she has definitely had some teachers that she felt that way about for sure. Mm. In fact, just before the last day of first grade, Mm-hmm. Steve and I overheard Alice crying in her room. So I go in, I was like, what's wrong, Alice? And she says, I just realized I will never be in Miss O'Keefe's class again. And oh. just broke into sobs. And she cried all the next day. Her teacher told me that Alice kept on like crying and hugging her. Oh my goodness. It was so <laughs> sweet. She just had that moment of like, I'm never going to be in Miss O'Keefe's class again. And it just felt great teacher, right? I know it just broke her heart. <laughs> so for today's story club, let's look at the way two different teachers shaped Anne's education. Early in the book, before Marilla and Matthew decide that Anne will stay at Green Gables, Marilla asks Anne about her education thus far. Anne says she didn't go to school a great deal, and only a little in the last year that she stayed with Mrs. Thomas, which would have been when she was eight. When she was staying with Mrs. Hammond and the fateful three sets of twins, Anne could only go to school in the spring and fall because they lived too far from the school to walk in the winter. But we do know that by the time Anne went to the orphan asylum at age 10, she could read fairly well and had learned a lot of poetry by heart. That certainly tracks with what we know about Anne. She loves beauty, and so the poetry that gives her a crinkly feeling up and down your back was likely a huge source of comfort and an outlet for her imagination. Anne tells Marilla she had gotten as far as the fourth reader, which put her toward the upper end of literacy for a one-room schoolhouse like Avonlea School. In the latter part of the 19th century, there were six readers for the students to work through. Oh, I didn't know that. Considering her lack of solid education thus far, her literacy is a remarkable achievement. Anne even notes that the big girls used to lend Anne their fifth readers so she could learn more poetry. Anne's education had been spotty and inconsistent, but clearly she is bright and an eager learner, ready to absorb all that a teacher can give her. Anne arrived at the Avonlea School full of optimism and enthusiasm. We start Anne's time at the Avonlea Schoolhouse with Mr. Phillips who makes a terrible first impression on Anne and on us, the readers. He uses humiliation as his main method of keeping order in his classroom and spends more time flirting with the oldest student, Prissy Andrews, than actively teaching the rest of the pupils. On Anne's very first day, he calls her spelling disgraceful and holds it up so everyone can see all the mistakes on it. Horrible, what a horrible- I hate him. 
I'm yeah. the worst. Using shame on this poor child. So it's three weeks into Anne's time at the Avonlea school that Mr. Phillips goes from being a mere annoyance to active villain status. Anne breaks the slate over Gilbert Blythe's head when he teases her, and Mr. Phillips has zero interest in finding out what really happened or even listening to Gilbert explain his part in the whole affair. Then he meets out punishment by mortification, making Anne stand in front of the class all day under the blackboard where he's written, Anne Shirley has a very bad temper. Anne Shirley must learn to control her temper. Not even bothering to spell her name correctly. And you know the absence of the E in Anne's name is the salt in the wound for her. It's just rude and petty. And the fact that he wouldn't listen to Gilbert, who was trying to explain. And then, to make matters even worse, the very next day after that humiliation, Mr. Phillips again unjustly punishes Anne, who this time was among several students who rushed in from the lunch hour just as Mr. Phillips arrived. Being too lazy to punish all the kids who arrived late, he seized on Anne as a scapegoat. He makes her sit with the boys as punishment, specifically Gilbert Blythe, and uses his sarcasm to make the moment still worse. This is the moment that Anne vows not to return to the schoolhouse. It's Mr. Phillips who has turned off an avid, eager pupil with his disdain and his hardness. And he doesn't even care! There's no mention of him following up with Marilla to find out why Anne hasn't come back to school. No moment of remorse when Anne reacts so strongly to her punishment. And all of that is in direct contrast to Marilla, who, as we have discussed, is very good at owning her part of any difficulties with Anne and seeing Anne's emotions, as dramatic as they may be, as valid and important. We find out after this from Mrs. Rachel, who knows everything, that Anne's impression about Mr. Phillips is right. Mrs. Rachel says, Anne won't miss much by not going to school as far as that goes. Mr. Phillips isn't any good at all as a teacher. The order he keeps is scandalous, that's what. And he neglects the young fry, puts all his time on those big scholars he's getting ready for Queens. He'd never have got the school for another year if his uncle hadn't been a trustee. Can I just say that I love Mrs. Rachel here? She is so matter-of-fact and sensible. She's calling it just like it is. And because Mrs. Rachel, a woman of her standing, can say that Mr. Phillips is terrible, I think that gives Marilla some of the tacit permission she might feel she needs to let Anne stay out of school until the whole mess just blows over. And it's wonderful that Marilla does do that because Mr. Phillips is legitimately terrible. Mm -hmm. Kelly... Have you ever had any truly terrible teachers, teachers who might have made you hate school or learning? I mean, I'm lucky that I don't think I ever had any that were quite as bad as Mr. Phillips, but I certainly had teachers who were burnt out and just kind of phoning it in. I remember so clearly this moment from, I think it was my seventh grade English class when we read Edgar Allan Poe's The Telltale Heart. Regan, I loved this story. As you oh, know, it was- yeah. I see this is this is this is little baby goth Kelly's like goth intro to creepy yes it just hit me right where I lived I was utterly absorbed in the eeriness and the ominousness of the story I was basically ready to start writing Edgar Allan Poe fanfic so we're discussing the story in class and I don't know what was going on with my teacher that day but she seemed really put off by how eager I was to talk about it. And she kept refusing to call on me. So it's like the classic Hermione Granger moment, right? Where my hand kept shooting up in the air and then she would call on anyone other than me. I mean, oh. this is like almost 30 years later and I still remember it. So finally though, she asked the class what they thought the tone of the story was. And now no one would raise their hands because a question like, what's the tone, is one of those totally subjective English teacher questions. But since I'm over here falling out of my chair to talk about this story, I shoot up my hand once again. And at this point, of course, she has no choice but to call on me. And I tell her, very proud of myself, that I think the tone of the telltale heart is angst. (laughs) Reagan, when I tell you her response, you are going to be so mad. She rolled her eyes. No. She rolled her eyes at me. And when I saw that she was shooting me down, I jumped right into a long explanation of why I thought that angst or angstiness was a good description of the tone. She just stopped me and asked if anyone else had an idea for the tone. Some other kid said, 
uh, creepy? And the teacher <laughs> literally said, yes, creepy. Now that's what I mean by tongue. <gasps> I remember. You were, this. what a disservice. I can't believe she rolled her eyes at you either. So rude, right? And it's like, I'm obviously I was already like the nerdy kid who was way too obsessed with English literature. And that's just giving the bullies more fodder. But anyway, I, in that time though, I just remember sitting back in my chair, just flabbergasted. I mean, I said angst <laughs> and you went with creepy. <laughs> I think angst works perfectly well for the telltale heart. That is a dude who had a ton of angst. angst. (laughs) I mean, clearly I'm honestly still mad about it. And I remember coming home that day and telling my parents and the next year they had me moved into honors English. Oh, good for your parents. Oh yeah. (laughs) A little, yeah. A little parental intervention was needed at that point. But no, tell me about you. Please tell me you didn't have your own Mr. Phillips story. Yeah, I don't think I had anybody as bad as Mr. Phillips. Like you, I definitely had a few teachers that were burnt out, had been teaching a really long time, maybe had lost some of that spark. Boring. Our high school choir teacher was creepy in his own way. He was very condescending, to be sure. And he definitely had favorites. He really preferred the popular girls. And he liked to show off and try and be cool in the way that adults think is not obvious to teenagers and you absolutely know that it is. Ew, I hate that. It's so cringy. It is. He liked to do this thing where sometimes when we were coming into chorus, he'd be sitting among the seats when we filed in. And so then whoever's chair he happened to be occupying had to kind of like hover uncomfortably while he chatted up whatever popular girl was in the vicinity. I know. So one day, He was sitting next to my seat. That was pretty rare. I was not popular. I was surprised he even knew my name. And by coincidence, the music he had playing that day as folks trickled in happened to be the Brandenburg Concertos by Bach. Okay. So usually it was more like, I would say not pop music, but like 80s yacht rock. Oh, amazing. Yeah. That's that's what he was listening to. That was maybe more Mr. Miller's style. Yeah. Yeah. But in this case, it happened to be the Brandenburg Concertos. So he starts talking to me in this very dismissive and condescending manner, all ready to school me in classical music. And he said, oh, I bet you don't even know who wrote this or what this music is because it's not pop music. But unfortunately for him, I happened to love the Brandenburg Concertos. <laughs> I had tapes of them. My dad got them for me. I listened to them constantly. So I shot back <laughs> immediately that's the Brandenburg Concerto number three in G by Bach. It's my favorite. I love that. You totally owned him. I did. He blanched and he stammered and slunk off, but he never sat next to my seat again. Oh, well, thank goodness. That particular kind of teacher, like the sort of trying to get self-esteem by like appearing cool to teenagers, I find incredibly creepy. Yeah. Okay. So speaking of creepy, you know, who's creepy is Mr. Phillips composing poems to his student Prissy instead of teaching. I hate him. I hate him. (laughs) Okay. So granted the age difference wasn't as stark as it would be in a modern teacher pupil relationship. Prissy's about 16 and it's likely that Mr. Phillips isn't much older than 19 himself, but still that's quite a power differential. Yes. We don't know anything about Prissy and whether she welcomes or returns the attention because really what could she even do about it? This is her teacher, the person responsible for her education and prepping her for the Queen's exam. She's trapped with receiving his flirtations because what's the alternative? It's so gross. I just hate it. I mean, I get that they might be close in age and I mean, who knows? Maybe Prissy and Mr. Phillips were soulmates. (laughs) Just the inappropriateness. And like you say, the fact that Prissy had no control or agency over that relationship. On the other hand, too, this is time he's taking away from the Avonlea school kids and they're losing respect for him. Yeah, Diana tells Anne about this on the walk to school on the very first day. All the kids are on to him. Wow. Yeah. He's not even subtle. Mm Mm-mm. And you can really tell how ineffectual of a teacher Mr. Phillips must be that Anne's education doesn't suffer at all from her staying home. She essentially teaches herself for the next several weeks. It also says something about Mr. Phillips that he's not excited to be teaching interested or interesting children. 
Anne says, Mr. Phillips said Minnie Andrews was a model pupil and there isn't a spark of imagination or life in her. She is just dull and pokey and never seems to have a good time. Mr. Phillips is clearly one of those teachers that equates being quiet and not asking questions with being a good student or maybe just a student that doesn't interfere with his flirtation with Prissy Andrews. <laughs> He's really missing the boat because Anne is likely a very exciting student to have and despite her temper and general daydreaminess, clearly has an academic bent. He completely squanders it. It's such a waste, truly. Although now I'm realizing seeing that Minnie is actually Prissy's younger sister or maybe cousin or something like that, right? Oh, yeah. Same last name. Maybe Minnie was being so, you know, dull and lifeless in school because she was contemplating a life of her sister married to Mr. Phillips and her having to have holiday dinners with him for the rest of her life. Oh, my God. All of a sudden, so much sympathy for Minnie Andrews. <laughs> Poor child. When Anne does return to school, if only to stay close to Diana following the Raspberry Cordial affair. She puts up with Mr. Phillips in order to stay there. It does not appear that he has improved any in the few weeks that Anne has been gone, but it's really her rivalry with Gilbert Blythe that has more to do with Anne's academic focus. Gilbert's top marks consistently push Anne to work hard to outdo him, and Anne's success is spurred on by that competition more than any influence by Mr. Phillips. Maud also tells us that, quote, Mr. Phillips might not be a very good teacher, but a pupil so inflexibly determined on learning as Anne could hardly escape making progress under any kind of a teacher, right? Like just having access to learning is all Anne really needs. Yeah. And getting to go consistently every day. Mm -hmm. So by the winter turn, both Anne and Gilbert initially behind the others due to their interrupted educations are promoted to the next level equal to their peers. Anne's made up over a year of school in only a few short months. So <laughs> I think the best we can say at this point about Mr. Phillips is that he doesn't get in Anne's way. He does leave a few parting shots before he goes, though, telling Anne that she's the worst dunce he ever saw at geometry. Evidently, not a teacher invested in motivating or inspiring his students. I can't imagine he was an inspiring teacher to learn a difficult subject with at all. Definitely not. Mr. Phillips leaves school at the end of the year. Unclear why. Mm -hmm. and Anne weeps buckets of tears less because she will miss Mr. Phillips and more because all the other girls were crying it must have been contagious and he did make a beautiful farewell speech although I tend to chalk that up to the general intensity of feeling for girls of that age than any deep affection for Mr. Phillips in particular his absence is quickly gotten over for all the Avonlea students when a sea change sweeps into the Avonlea schoolroom in the form of Miss Stacy. While Anne recovers from her broken ankle, she hears from Diana that the girls all think she is perfectly sweet. Diana says she has the loveliest fair curly hair and such fascinating eyes. She dresses beautifully and her sleeve puffs are bigger than anybody else's in Avonlea. Every other Friday afternoon, she has recitations and everybody has to say a piece or take part in a dialogue. And the Friday afternoons, they don't have recitations. Miss Stacy takes them all to the woods for a field day and they study ferns and flowers and birds and they have physical culture exercises morning and evening. Mrs. Lynn says she never heard of such goings on and it all comes of having a lady teacher but I think it must be splendid. And I believe I shall find Miss Stacy is a kindred spirit. And sure enough, Miss Stacy is a kindred spirit. She helps Anne dive deep into her love of learning, pushing her to her fullest potential and helps Anne channel her imagination into writing and just generally believing in her abilities. It's under Miss Stacy's guidance that Anne finally grasps geometry and enjoys academics for their own sake, not just for the sake of beating Gilbert. Miss Stacy continually inspires Anne and the other Avonlea students to be their best selves. And I think it's really interesting to consider Miss Stacy in the context of our Birch Path discussion from the last episode, where we talked about how during this time period, there were burgeoning social movements to protect children, and childhood was coming to be seen as this time of innocence and proximity to the natural world. There was a belief that being outside and moving your body and enjoying nature was critical to healthy growth and learning. And the transition from didactic, dull Mr. Phillips to innovative, idealistic Miss Stacy perfectly represents that cultural shift as well. 
I think Anne of Green Gables, the book, is really a very progressive, very feminist book for all of its seemingly quaint morals and themes. Certainly for Maud's time, it must have seemed so. Yeah, I think you're right. Well, Miss Stacy spearheads the Christmas concert, and while Marilla thinks it's nonsense, Anne, of course, adores the idea. She throws herself into the plans, rehearsing and practicing, and it's Anne's excitement about the concert that spurs Matthew to buy Anne her puffed-sleeved dress to wear as she performs. I think many of us, or hopefully most of us, have been lucky enough to have a teacher that has given us a platform or an opportunity for us to shine and draw out our talents. Oh, yes. I feel like I've been really lucky. I've had so many wonderful English and theater and music teachers over the years. And to be honest, I'm even still in touch with both my high school and my college journalism professors, both of whom are fierce and fabulous women who always encouraged me to use my pen as my sword. I will, Reagan, (laughs) share one story about one of my absolute favorite English professors from college, though. I think it's my junior or senior year, and we're reading... Faulkner's Absalom Absalom and at that time I was totally obsessed with American Southern Gothic writers and still am to be honest yeah. tracks that also the tracks, tracks. Yeah. The, the line from the telltale heart the Faulkner. very clear actually so but you know at that time Faulkner really had my heart and I would pour over his books like a detective looking for solutions to riddles and hidden intent one night my roommate and I are talking about Absalom And as we're talking, we figure out the big dynastic mystery at the center of the book, which is not obvious, but also if you're reading closely, you will get it. (laughs) It's a Friday night. We have class again on Tuesday. This is not an emergency by anyone's standards, but I'm so excited about our discovery that I became that kid in seventh grade English again, shooting her hand up in the air. I tracked down our syllabus where our professor had left her home phone number. I think she was still an adjunct at that time and might not have had a private office on campus. So she gave us her home number. (laughs) Oh, those those were the times. (laughs) So then I called Professor McGowan at home to tell her about my revelation. (laughs) Wine might have been involved. (laughs) But also, I really was just that excited about the book. Fortunately for all of us, she wasn't at home and we got her answering machine and I left a breathless message all about our breakthrough. Then come Tuesday, I admit I went to class a little subdued, embarrassed by the phone call and frankly, probably remembering what it felt like to be shut down by a teacher in the past. But my professor began the class with a huge grin on her face and she said, there's no higher compliment than when you reach out to me with enthusiasm and I love that I have such nerdy students. She meant it in the warmest, most complimentary way, and I have been her biggest fan ever since. And I think that was also one of those turning points for me in realizing that, like, one of the best things about adulthood is finding the people who are just as excitedly nerdy about the things that you love as you are. I love that story, and I love this teacher. And honestly- She's great, honestly. Yeah, honestly, it was probably such a compliment for her to realize that on a Friday night, you were pouring over your Faulkner and so excited and pleased to have figured out something important about it. I mean, probably something she knew, but, (laughs) you know, as the professor. (laughs) Yeah, probably not a mystery for her. (laughs) What a compliment that you couldn't wait to tell her something that was exciting you about what you were learning yeah no it is it's it's embarrassing but sweet so Reagan please tell me that you have a less embarrassing story about a great teacher well I don't think I ever called any of my teachers at home (laughs) oh lord I had a lot of wonderful teachers both in high school and in college and I could tell you lots of stories about why all of them were fabulous there's a there's a time limit But I am thinking a little bit about Mr. Barnes, who was my U.S. history teacher in ninth grade, and who, while he was not an interesting teacher himself, didn't get angry when he noticed I was reading novels in my history book every class Uh, and and still doing well on the test, but rather he bumped me into the honors history track instead for the next semester. And then I had the sublime Mr. Norvell who made our entire class passionate about U.S. history. Like Miss Stacy, Mr. Norvell was a big fan of what we now call project-based learning. Okay. 
One of the things he did was he set us to researching and conducting a post-World War I summit in which we argued for reparations and punishments as all the countries involved in the war. I have such vivid memories of that event. And as a class, we rehashed it for the next three years of our high school education. Oh, I love that, that everyone was so invested in it and became such a like a formative memory for everyone. It really did. And I would not have considered myself a history buff prior to Mr. Norvell, which was why I didn't apply for the honors history track, but I definitely became one in his class. Teachers who help you find your way to a new subject or a new passion are just the best. Yes. And just like our great teachers, Miss Stacy inspired the story club with her assigning the class a fiction story as an assignment. As Diana bemoaned her lack of imagination and jumped at the chance to lean into fiction writing and suggested that they practice by having a story club to, quote, cultivate their imaginations. Miss Stacy is such an inspiring teacher. A whole group of students starts writing stories on their own just for fun. I mean, that would never happen under Mr. Phillips. Never under Mr. Phillips, for sure. Miss Stacy knows the effect she has on her pupils, how they look up to her. And Anne tells us, Miss Stacy took all us girls who are in our teens down to the brook last Wednesday and talked to us about it. She said, we couldn't be too careful what habits we formed and what ideals we acquired in our teens, because by the time we were 20, our characters would be developed and the foundation laid for our whole future life. And she said, if the foundation was shaky, we could never build anything really worthwhile on it. Okay, Reagan, I'm, I'm curious about your take on this passage, because for me, I think this is one of those passages that like we can read a lot of meaning into as modern day readers. Hmm. I know when I most recently read this, I kind of assumed that Miss Stacy was giving the girls like a sex talk or just encouraging them not to have sex until they were married. I don't know if that's how I read it. Because it comes up in context where Anne is telling Marilla a little bit about feeling like she has to be more grown up and more responsible mm -hmm. is sort of the context that it comes in. So I was assuming that that was more of the context. I don't know how much sex ed they did back then. Well, I'm guessing they did none, which is why I thought it was all the more remarkable that Miss Stacy was having this like apparently very candid conversation about their characters. And, and then I was thinking that, you know, a big part of Miss Stacy's role in the community would have been to set an example of morality for all the young girls. I mean, because much like the minister's wife, Miss Stacy would have been one of the most visible women in town. And so it fell to her to be a solid role model. I think we can take Anne at her word when she tells Marilla and the reader that Miss Stacy is concerned with their characters and their values and their personal growth. I just think it's really remarkable how Miss Stacy isn't just an inspiring teacher with new ideas, but is also so deeply and personally invested in the well-being of her students long after they've left Avonlea School. Yeah. Well, one of the things that I noted in the book is at one point at the end of one of Miss Stacy's year, the students ask Miss Stacy if she's planning on staying for another year. There had been kind of a rumor that she was being asked to kind of move up to a bigger school. Mm -hmm. And she says that actually, while she had gotten an offer, she wanted to stay to kind of see them through their education. She was so invested in them. Oh, Miss Stacy, yes. Well, one way that Miss Stacy is making sure her students are well-equipped for their futures is by establishing an after-school prep class for applicants to Queens Academy, the secondary school and teacher training program in Charlottetown, and apparently the only option for post-grammar school education. Miss Stacy went to Marilla directly and told her that Anne was bright and diligent and apparently even more complimentary things that Marilla won't tell Anne for fear of her vanity. <laughs> I love that. She won't even tell us in the book. Just I know. That just that Miss Stacy said a great deal more, but she didn't want Anne's head to get too big. Yep. And that Anne would do well at Queens. We see Miss Stacy again in contrast to Mr. Phillips. He tutored Prissy for her Queens entrance exams during instruction time for the other children, while Miss Stacy will be offering extra classes after regular school is over. I mean, that's got to be a lot of extra work for her. Oh, yeah. I mean, this is her life now. Yeah. She also makes the effort to speak to the parents directly about why their children would do well at Queens. 
And I'm sure that has something to do with the fact that Avonlea will ultimately send half a dozen young people away to Queens that year. Yeah, as opposed to in the past where it was just, you know, we just saw with Prissy, it was just one, right? Yeah. So Miss Stacy leads the would-be Queen scholars in rigorous studies, introducing them to Latin and French grammar and just expanding their academic horizons. And when the term is up, she tells the kids that they should rest and enjoy their summer vacations. Miss Stacy tells them that rest is as important as studying and that they've all earned a good, jolly vacation. These are the life lessons that you come back to these books for. Miss Stacy knew that there's no reward in the grind. And when they did return to school, it was a jolly, busy, happy, swift flying winter. Schoolwork was as interesting, class rivalry as absorbing as of yore. New worlds of thought, feeling, and ambition. Fresh, fascinating fields of unexplored knowledge seemed to be opening out before Anne's eager eyes. Much of all this was due to Miss Stacy's tactful, careful, broad-minded guidance. She led her class to think and explore and discover for themselves and encouraged straying from the old beaten paths to a degree that quite shocked Mrs. Lynde and the school trustees, who viewed all the innovations on established methods rather dubiously. I really cannot imagine a higher compliment for a teacher than this very passage. I feel like any of the wonderful teachers I've known would be gratified and proud to know that they had led their class to think and explore and discover for themselves, that they encouraged their students to stray from the old beaten paths. Mm. This is such a contrast to Mr. Phillips, who does not seem interested in his students questioning or discovering anything for themselves. Right, quite the opposite. He wants them to sort of, you know, sit down and stay quiet while he lectures them. Miss Stacy's incredibly hands-on approach and incredibly, you know, the word we would use today is holistic. Uh-huh. Mind, body, spirit, you know, all working as one approach to education is so forward-thinking. So in addition to all this extra work Miss Stacy is doing with the classes, she's also preparing practice exams for her nervous applicants. I am telling you, Regan, this woman is really going above and beyond for these kids. She is. <laughs> and she really tries to help them stay focused and not get overwhelmed by the prospect of not passing. And sure enough, all of the Avonlea kids pass and earn entrance to Queens. And Anne and Gilbert, their rivalry flourishing as ever, tied for first place. Miss Stacy then encourages both Anne and Gilbert to attempt to complete their two years at Queens in a single year, which of course they both do. Anne and Gilbert thrive at Queens and they are in fierce competition for scholarships and medals. The other Avonlea students also find areas of prominence at Queens and Maud tells us that all of Miss Stacy's former pupils had held their own. She has certainly earned her students' devotion, and we even see that Anne keeps a photograph of Miss Stacy in a place of honor on her dresser with flowers near it. Now, that is a teacher who has truly left an impression. She really has. I'm so happy that Anne, somebody who wants to learn so much, finally gets a chance to just flourish in her education and to have a teacher as committed to helping her thrive as she could have ever wanted. She probably could never even have imagined in her wildest dreams in the past, a teacher as passionate and devoted and skilled as Miss Stacy has been. I think that's so interesting, Reagan, because we've talked before about how Anne finds exactly the people she needs. You know, how it were mm. in Matthew, she found the perfect balance of structure and stability and unconditional love. And how in Diana, she found a little girl who was not only her entryway into Avonlea society, but also someone who just adored her for exactly who she was and would go on all of her flights of fancy with her. And I think Miss Stacy is just another one of these characters who met Anne exactly where she was and gave her exactly what she needed. Yes. Yes, she absolutely did. So for today's Birch Path Detour, I'm going to take us a little bit into what education was like in general for Anne's contemporaries in Canada. Okay. I did a little research into one-room schoolhouses, particularly on Prince Edward Island, around the time that Anne would have gone to school. At that time, the church, the school, and the general store would have been the three main hubs of the community, with schools hosting concert, dances, and other social events. 
Okay, that explains a lot of why the the Avonlea school kids are always like doing Christmas concerts or poetry readings or all sorts of things because it really yeah. was like a social focus for the whole town. Absolutely. For kids, it would either be school or Sunday school. Like those are going to be the places where all of the social connections are going to be made. One of the interesting things that would have affected the state of education in PEI at the time was the 1852 Prince Edward Island Free Education Act that essentially made education free for the first time. Before that, each community would have to raise the money to pay for a teacher. With this act, the government paid the teachers basic salaries, which led to a whole network of schools spread across the province. Communities were still responsible for the upkeep of the schools, supplies, and equipment, but because the government paid the teacher's salary, that meant that all the communities could afford a teacher. And I think that's interesting to think of in the context of Maud herself, who we know taught as well, because that also provided an avenue for young people, young educated people to have work other than maybe, you know, what their parents did. Yeah. PEI was the first maritime province in Canada to make education free. So they placed a very high value of education in their community. Dr. Edward MacDonald, not related to Maud in any way. <laughs> I think PEI is a very Scottish island. So yeah. anytime I've done any research, so many people whose last names are MacDonald pop up. I know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So Dr. Edward McDonald is a professor at the Department of History and Classics at the U at University Prince Edward Island. And he explains that before paved roads, the educational system was set up so students didn't have to walk any farther than two and a half miles to get to a school, meaning there was a one-room schoolhouse every five miles. And at the height of the one-room school system in PEI, there were approximately 475 of the little schools across the province. Wow. Yeah. For context, PEI is about 2,000 square miles. So that does work out to about one school for every four square miles. That's really amazing when you think about it, right? Yeah. And that's a real commitment to education. It is. And because PEI was primarily a rural society and their two major industries are fishing and farming, a one-room schoolhouse, generally going up to grade eight, was often sufficient as families just wanted their children to be able to read, write, do basic sums, and then return to work on the farm or in the fishing industry. Mm -hmm. These schools declined starting in 1960s when the island government began to consolidate schools, first starting with the high schools and then moving down. And by the mid-70s, the one-room schoolhouse had essentially vanished. It's interesting to me, though, that the one-room schoolhouses flourished well into the 20th century, though. Yeah. Well, I think the fact that PEI was so rural for so long, sure. it made a lot of sense and that it was just easier for students to be able to walk to school. So you're going to have these small schools as opposed to busing students in cities or in larger communities where you might bus students to a more central location. Right. And then having the sort of flexibility of these sort of smaller classes where if kids do need to help with harvesting or, you know, at certain times when their family businesses are more busy, they can do that more readily. Right. Right. Education can kind of be a little bit more customized to each community. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. At the end of Anne of Green Gables, when Anne is deciding to stay at Green Gables to teach so she can help Marilla, you hear her talk about the variety of schools in the area. Carmody and White Sands are options for her as well as Avonlea. So now, knowing that there were schoolhouses about every five miles, we can see that, of course, there would be several schools that Anne could easily commute to by horse and buggy, even if they were a little too far to walk from Green Gables. Okay, so that answers a question that I have always had about this, where, you know, she was, I think she was going to take the White Sands school, was that yeah. what it was? And I was like, okay, well, does she have to get an apartment in White Sands? How's that going to work? Yeah. But no, she could have just hitched a ride every day. Yeah, she and Marilla had a horse and buggy. And- right. One of the other things that was very common for teachers is if they lived too far from the school to commute every day, they would board with a local family or a member. Oh, of the sure. Mm -hmm, that makes sense. Particularly the women teachers, right? Not, right. not going to let them out on their own. Dr. McDonald said that most schools went up to grade eight with some schools going up to grade 10 or 11. Depending on the size of the community, there could be anywhere from 20 to 40 children in a schoolhouse all taught by one teacher. The yeah. curriculum, yeah, the curriculum would have focused on the basics, reading, writing, and math with maybe some geography or history for the older grades, even a little Latin if the school went all the way up to grade 11. And reports that they're learning geography, 
Canadian history and dictation when she starts school under Mr. Phillips, in addition to the reading, writing, and math. Miss Stacy brings in natural science to the school. And we know the Queensbound scholars learned Latin and French grammar as well. The school studies Tennyson's poems under the prescription of the superintendent of education who requires it in the English course for all PEI schools. So this is clearly as education reform is gathering strength, mm -hmm. standardizing curriculum, pushing students beyond basic reading and writing across the island. So it sounds like the Avonlea school had a pretty academic and rigorous curriculum, possibly compared to some other schools in the area. I think it's interesting that some of the other subjects that they were taught were like Canadian history and geography and dictation, because that really shows that they are being prepared for work probably outside of Avonlea, right? Yeah. If you're learning how to take dictation, that means you're going to become, you know, a clerk for a lawyer or for a banker or something like that. If you're learning history, maybe you are working for someone in politics. All of these things seem mm -hmm. to be hinting at jobs that would go outside of sort of what you would expect for Avonlea. Maybe. Although I think dictation at this time was meaning not like a secretary taking dictation, but speaking. Oh, oh, you are probably totally right about that. Right. Like dictation, like, like, yeah, like learning a speech or a poem and mm -hmm. speaking it eloquently because that was the main form of entertainment. Right, right. And we see that they actually do that. You know, they get at these concerts and do these sort of dictation speeches. That is probably exactly what you're talking about. I'm yeah. thinking of secretarial work. Oh, yeah, well. different kind of dictation. How, how times have changed. Yes, exactly. <laughs> not that some of those students may have not have become secretaries. <laughs> so the teachers themselves might only have had one year of teacher training. If you recall, Jane doesn't do the two-year course but she is also ready to teach. And so is Ruby Gillis. They did the right. one-year course to be a teacher. Anne and Gilbert do the more advanced, rigorous two-year course, which is not required to be a teacher. They do it in one year, but they're taking the kind of the advanced option. So teachers only needed one year of extra training to be a teacher. So they're barely older than the students themselves. That's so wild to me. It is. So maybe we can't blame Mr. Phillips too much for his uninspired teaching, although it certainly makes Miss Stacy that much more remarkable. Right. What was she doing in that year? Yeah. What did she learn? Wow. Yeah. How difficult it must have been to try and teach both beginning readers and students learning Latin at the same time. By necessity, lessons would have to focus on some rote memorization, copying lines on a slate, or working sums on their own to be checked by the teacher later. You couldn't possibly teach all of those students together all the time. Yeah, I wonder. It must have been chaos. Yeah. Well, I even think, okay, so at Alice's school, one of their big things is what's called differentiation, which okay. is the idea of in the classroom, say she's in fifth grade, right? In the fifth grade classroom, all, students of like across the whole spectrum are learning the same material together and it's up to the teacher to push the more advanced students a little deeper and to help the students who need it make some accommodations so they can all learn the same material at the same time does that make sense yeah and and that seems like a really great idea in theory in terms of inclusivity and making sure that everybody is getting to learn together but it seems like there's probably a lot of practical challenges with that sure. I, mean, I can kind of see it maybe with reading right where maybe you're reading um, a book that sort of is right down the line in terms of the grade level and you know you're working on harder vocabulary with the kids who are more advanced and easier vocabulary with the other children but when you come to something like math like how do you even do that yeah it's interesting. And, you know, I can't really speak to how they do it. I know her school is really great about it because I can, yeah. I can see it happening, but this is differentiation across, like you're talking about from oh. seven-year-olds up to 16-year-olds all at the same time. I mean, crazy. Well, and so I wonder how many of these lessons are sort of focused around a central topic or theme and then sort of tailored to the individual uh, learning style of the kids. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know enough about it. Uh, I mean, we could probably spend all day. I'm sure people have spent all days, uh, lifetimes, investigating and researching this very thing. So that is a funny digression. 
So the high school that I went to was built in the early 1970s. And at the time it was built, they built all the classrooms with no walls. Interesting. So I know. <laughs> and the idea was very much this, this concept of just sort of like, if you just have sort of wide open spaces for kids to all learn together, there'll be like a free flow of ideas. And like, I don't know, maybe kids will learn about other things from osmosis just by being next to another group of students learning. Seems so- noisy. Yeah, I think so that in reality is was what happened. And I think about a year after the school was built, they did put in these sort of like sliding door walls. So we had these like very thin, easily removed walls in our school. (laughs) Yeah, something that seemed good in theory, but in practice would have been very difficult to make work. Yeah, seriously. So in Anne's world, in the one-room schoolhouse world, the teacher would have been expected to keep the schoolroom clean on their own, to maintain order by whatever means necessary, which could include physical punishment. They certainly didn't have a principal to send the student to or anybody to kind of back them up. The trustees for the school might pop in to quiz the children on their lessons as a means of ensuring that the education was up to snuff. And there were basic curriculum standards for each grade level, like the readers you were talking about, Mm -hmm. but not a lot of support for individual teachers. In fact, in the second Anne book, which we'll get to somewhere down the line, Anne of Avonlea, we learn a lot about Anne's trials as a new teacher. It's not as easy as Anne thought it was going to be. Right. And you see in that book, a lot of the ways that her her patience and her temper are really put to the test. Yeah. Yeah. There's not a lot of support. Who do you go to for help if you're struggling? Yeah. And the, and the teachers, like we were saying, if they've only had a year of training, they don't even have a lot of knowledge to do this. I think that's interesting though, especially thinking about how Mr. Phillips and Miss Stacy both only stayed a couple of years. We know from Anne of Avonlea that Anne only stays a couple of years. It seems like <laughs> they kind of throw these young teachers into the fire and then they sputter out after a few years. I'm not sure how many lifelong teachers there are in this one, one room schoolhouse system. I think often for the young women, it was you taught until you got married because right, right. you couldn't be married. You married women were not allowed to be teachers at the time. So right. I, in Ruby Gillis, Anne's friend states her intention in the book to only teach for two years and then get married. Well, I hope that works out for Ruby. Yeah. <laughs> well, we'll come back to that another time, another day. Whereas her friend, Jane Andrews says she intends to teach forever and never be married because at least with teaching, you got paid on your own. Whereas if you were married, your husband controlled the money. Honestly, Jane Andrews is not wrong. Honestly, Jane Andrews is not wrong. Is she related to Prissy and Minnie? Unclear (laughs) how the Andrews children are related. Are they cousins? Are they sisters? (laughs) That was Jane's big takeaway from having Mr. Phillips across the holiday table. (laughs) (laughs) Never get married. Nope. And as we talked about, teachers often boarded with a local family to be close to the school. Mm -hmm. And there definitely was a strict code of conduct, particularly for the women, but for the men too. So they they could be models of moral development for the children. Sure. Anne does get an excellent education in her one-room schoolhouse. And it sounds like many, many children well up through the 1960s on Prince Edward Island did as well. Okay, so moving on to the things we love about Miss Stacy, almost as much as we love puff sleeves. And you know, Miss Stacy did have the biggest puff sleeves in all of Avonlea. Says right there that she did. I wanted to note that Miss Stacy was the first woman to teach at Avonlea School. Mrs. Rachel is suspicious, naturally, of such a new fangled thing. But I guess Mr. Phillips was so dreadful that the Board of Trustees was willing to take a chance <laughs> on a woman. <laughs> and what really delights me about that is that a year or so after Miss Stacy leaves Avonlea, Anne herself takes over the Avonlea school. So now we know that Miss Stacy not only inspired Anne academically, but she broke the glass ceiling for Anne. What a hero. Miss Stacy, we love you. Yes. A favorite moment for me with Miss Stacy. So what happens is Marilla says, hey, Miss Stacy was up here to talk to me this evening. And Anne immediately tattles on herself. Of course. Anne tells her that Miss Stacy had caught Anne reading Ben-Hur in class, tucked into her history textbook. Anne, I see you. Miss Stacy keeps Anne after class and gently talks to her about the deception, but she gives her the books back. Anne is heartbroken that she's disappointed Miss Stacy and promised her that she would give up reading (laughs) Ben-Hur. 
And the state <laughs> says, no, of course she doesn't do that. She doesn't need to do that. She just needs to pay attention in class. I love this moment for two reasons. So one is, as I've stated, I was always the kid reading something else behind her textbooks in class. Yes. I was a very quick reader. So I often finished my class reading or my assignment first. So then I could sneak whatever novel I was reading into my desk and read as stealthily as I could. I don't know how stealthy I actually was. Certainly the only times I got in trouble at school as a kid was getting caught reading when I was supposed to be doing something else. <laughs> uh, I probably had some other teachers who knew that I was doing it and gently turned a blind eye in the moment. So I very much relate to Anne in that moment. And all of my teachers were as gentle with correction as Miss Stacy. As I said, even Mr. Barnes, who I would never have guessed to be a kindred spirit, didn't chew me out about it. Kindred yeah. spirits are everywhere. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, shout out Mr. Barnes. So I love that Miss Stacy doesn't abuse her role as a teacher here. She knows how much Anne looks up to her and she gently redirects her, but she doesn't make her feel worse than she already feels. Yeah. And I have a sneaking suspicion that Miss Stacy herself may have tried to read a few novels herself when she was a kid. Oh, her, I'm sure. <laughs> when she was supposed to be doing other things. <laughs> I'm sure she did. And I love what you said about how Miss Stacy talked to her about the deception, but gave her the book back. Right. And this is where, you know, Miss Stacy just takes that role of like moral role model so to heart that she would never want to keep a student like Anne, who's so committed and who's so engaged in her learning. She would never want to take that away from Anne. But at the same time, it's as important to Miss Stacy that Anne be upright and honest and honorable as it is that she be academically successful. Yes. Yes. And, and she's really aware of how much the girls or all her students, but particularly a student like Anne admire her and want to be like her. Yeah. And she doesn't, she doesn't abuse that. Yeah, exactly. Right. Unlike some other teachers we could name Mr. <laughs> Phillips. <laughs> well, let's finish up today's episode with an inspired by Miss Stacy moment. Kelly, how have you been inspired by Miss Stacy? Okay, I was thinking about this, and my biggest takeaway from Miss Stacy is that I am so inspired by her approach to work life balance. I know that I get very caught up in work. I get, I definitely enjoy being busy, but Miss Stacy knows that you really do your best learning and growing when you can stop and take a walk in the woods or a nice long summer break. And if that's something you struggle with too, I'm going to strongly and heartily recommend a book that I'm sure Miss Stacy would have loved. So the book is called Burnout, The Secret to Unlocking the Stress Cycle. It's written by Emily and Amelia Nagoski, uh, their sisters. The book taught me so much about how overwork and overwhelm disrupt your ability to regulate pretty much everything your brain and body need to do to stay healthy. And it provided some really useful information about how to get back on track and help your body feel safe again after a stressful situation. A long walk through Violet Vale would definitely do the trick if you were in Avonlea. But this is a book that I, I've gotten a lot of use out and, I, and I've actually shared it with a lot of my friends and my colleagues, and it's been immensely helpful. And so now when I feel that adrenaline rush that comes from an approaching deadline or a stressful meeting or a demanding email, I have a whole toolbox of little strategies that I can employ to feel better in the moment and keep from spiraling into overwhelm and burnout. I love that because you can really see how Anne uses the natural world in that way. Yes. And Stacey encourages that in her students as well. And that we all need that balance. And it turns out it's backed up by science. It is. You spending time in nature, going for a walk, moving your body gently, those are all things that disrupt that stress cycle and allow you to sort of clear your brain and get some perspective on whatever your situation is and then go back and handle it. And you know what else? I just did a training on sleep for oh, my sure. annual CEUs. I did not know, I maybe knew this instinctively, but I didn't know that this was true, that sleep is one of the things that helps us move things from our working memory into our long-term memory to be consolidated mm -hmm. where we can find them. Okay. And so 
if you, you know, the, that, that idea of like studying all the night through before an exam and then going straight from studying to the exam is not good for you because your brain hasn't had a chance to consolidate the information yes. to move it from your working memory to into your long-term memory. And so it actually makes it harder to recall that sleep and rest is one of those things that really help your brain. I remember that with studying for the bar exam, actually, I had to employ all sorts of tips and tricks and interesting little sort of mental strategies just to cram that much information into my brain. And a big one was training myself not to do that night before cram, which had always been successful for short exams or things where you just need to real quick regurgitate the answers on the page. But for something like the bar exam, which in California was a three-day slog, you needed to be well-rested and you needed to be kind of in good physical shape as much as you could be and take care of that whole mind and body in order to get through it. Yeah. It's interesting. I actually just, Alice and I just had this little conversation about it. She's been doing this musical theater class. Oh yes. Uh, yeah. So she would come home and the first day she came home, I was like, Oh, what'd you learn? She's like, she tried to show us the dance she had learned. And she's like, I just learned it. Why can't I remember all the steps? Oh yeah. So I told mm -hmm. her that I was like, well, you haven't had a chance to consolidate it. Try again tomorrow after you've slept. And sure enough, the next morning she could remember all of the steps. And so now she even wow, said proof. Yeah. She'll come home and she'd be like, we learned a lot today, but I can't, I don't think I can show you right at the moment. I need to sleep and then I can show you tomorrow. Oh, I love that she has already learned that and already has some perspective on that because I'm so familiar with that feeling of, oh, my brain is done. And I know yeah. that the next morning I'll be better, but you just get to that place where your brain is just tired and you have yep. to respect it and you have to give it time to rest and you have to give yourself some time to recover. And whether that's a long walk in the woods or just a good night's sleep, all that is so important. Yep. Miss Stacy knew that. Yeah, she did. So today I'm going to suggest not an item, but an action. If you are a parent and have had any positive interactions with one of your children's teacher, take the time to email their principal, copy the teacher on that email, tell the principal how amazing the teacher is and be specific. What a great idea. Yes, of course. I really try to do this every year for Alice's teacher. And I know it means a lot, but I've heard from the teachers. It means a lot. I know it means a lot for the principal to hear that and to hear that kind of specific praise. And and yeah, I'm, because... sure that they, I'm sure that they love, you know, the sort of like, I don't know, gift cards and things they get around the holidays, but something like this is something much more tangible and really goes to the heart of why they're doing what they're doing. Absolutely. We've gotten exceedingly lucky, I think, with all of Alice's teachers from preschool right up until now. And it means so much to me as a parent to feel like this is where my child is spending the bulk of her days yeah. and knowing that she's with a teacher who cares about her, that challenges her, that is a safe place for her to learn and grow and make mistakes is just such an important part of that parenting journey. And I want to make sure that the principal knows that. So, and, and the teacher knows that because yeah, this is a hard enough job as it is. And there's so many demands on them that being able to know that they are being seen and what they're doing is, is making a difference really, I think is important. Yeah. That's, that's such a great tip, Reagan. And if you want to do something concrete for a teacher and you don't even have to be a parent to do this, go to Donors Choose and get some of those classroom projects funded that teachers Yes, do. I co-sign Donors Choose. I have a teacher at a local elementary school um, who I kind of sponsor every time he puts up an event on Donors Choose. Love it. Email and I always donate. I'm not breaking the bank or anything, but the requests are usually moderate. And what happens in, in response to that is then he'll send out photos of the kids using the materials that the, the funds were able to purchase for them. And yeah. one of the things I that he recently did, he's a science teacher, is he built an outdoor classroom at our local elementary school for the kids to have their science classes outside. That is definitely Miss Stacy approved. Yes. <laughs> yes. You do not have to be a parent to support some teachers out there. So many of them are pouring their heart and soul into teaching and we want them to keep that inspiration. We want to we want them to keep that spark that drew them into this profession yes. as long as possible. And that's really one way that you can support them. So they can do the interesting, creative lessons that so many of them want to do. 
yeah, want to do, but often don't have the resources to do. Yeah. And as a non-parent, you know, t- supporting teachers in schools means you're also supporting the kids in your community. Mm-hmm. I think it's one of the best ways to give back. Well, oh, what a fun discussion about Miss Stacy and inspiring teachers. Thank you all so much for joining us today, Kindred Spirits. Please follow us and review us wherever you do listen to podcasts so other Kindred Spirits can find us as well. And then please join us next time as we discuss the ladies of Avonlea, Mrs. Lind, Mrs. Allen, and Mrs. Barry. Bye, friends. Bye.